The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Time is Now for Outpatient CAR-T, Essential Infrastructure, Lessons from Transplant, and New Evidence. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash NEC 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning, everyone. I am Olaleko Oluwale, and I'd like to welcome you to the Time is Now for Our Patient CAR-T, Essential Infrastructure Lessons from Transplant and New Evidence. We'd like to say thank you to my other panelists, Dr. Veronica Bakanova, Heather Lando, and David Potter. So the purpose of this workshop is to increase your understanding of evidence supporting CAR-T in different malignant settings, as well as results from the outpatient setting, review the infrastructure and design of outpatient cell therapy programs, and incorporating the lessons learned from home-based transplant. Also equip you with the skills you need for optimal patient selection, staffing and toxicity management with our patient cell therapy, and provide you with some guidance on using tools and technologies to ensure a successful delivery of CAR-T therapy in the outpatient setting. So our next speaker will be Dr. Bakanova that will talk about the outpatient CAR-T essentials from necessary infrastructure to key evidence on delivery of care. Good morning, uh, everyone, and thanks for coming uh, early in the morning for this uh, exciting symposium. Um, I am going to present you some uh, evidence for outpatient administration of a CAR-T and the issues related to toxicity and some, um, uh, some, some, some infrastructure uh, uh, early uh, data, but later will be presented by Dr. Potter. So... Um, CAR-T cell therapy uh, indeed is a breakthrough modality for the hematological malignancies, for the B-cell uh, lymphoma leukemia. And as you see on this timeline, uh, there is a, a validation of the multiple CD19 CAR-T constructs in different uh, non-Hodgkin lymphomas. Uh, since 2017, we now have six approved CAR-T cell therapies in the U.S. for the treatment of the large cell lymphoma uh, re refractory mental cell lymphoma and follicle lymphoma using axicel and uh, lisacel in a second line and uh, tisacel in a third line a therapy, brexacel for the mental cell lymphoma and tisacel for the follicle lymphoma. In addition to lymphomas, cardicel therapy is now approved for B cell ALL. Tisacel uh, in the Eliana trial led to uh, approval for the pediatric. Uh, refractory BAL for patients younger than 26, and more recently in 2021, cell was approved for adults with uh, refractory BALL. And targeting BCMA on multiple myeloma cells, we now have two uh, CAR-T-cell products approved for refractory multiple myeloma uh, for patients who failed at least four prior lines of therapy, and this is Idacel and Siltacel. So these are exciting and breakthrough uh, treatments. Uh, the most recent updates are coming from these four uh, studies, and they continue to uh, change the practice for CAR cell therapy in uh, the diseases which I mentioned. In Zuma 7 and Transform were two phase three randomized studies comparing CAR cell therapy to standard of care autologous transplant for those patients who have a relapse disease after frontline therapy or are refractory to frontline therapy, and both of them continue to show significant event-free survival improvement with a hazard ratio 0.4 for Zuma 7 and 0.35 for Transform. Eliana was recently updated with a three-year follow-up, again showing remarkable overall response rate of 81%, and overall survival in the median time has not been reached. This is using Tisacel. And Karma 3 is... Uh, been reported in uh, patients with a uh, refractory multiple myeloma, which met its primary endpoint. And on today's meeting, in a late-breaking abstract session, we will hear the uh, results of the phase three randomized study uh, where the IDA cells were used in the uh, patients who had two to four lines of therapy, so in earlier uh, time of the disease. 
evolution. Despite this uh, remarkable efficacy results, we also are learning uh, that the price to pay for these therapies, which is a significant toxicity, and particularly CRS and ICANS is, are, are the immune effect associated uh, side effects which the community is learning to uh, treat and manage. So um, the incidence of the ICANS and CRS is quite variable. Uh, here are the pivotal studies with the different costimatory molecule and the incidence of the CRS uh, in all grades, and what we worry about is the high-grade CRS and high-grade ICANS. As you see, the most significant or most uh, higher prevalence is in uh, the uh, CAR-T's constructs with CD48 costumatory uh, domain. And it varies anywhere from um, 20 to 60% ICANs, but high-grade ICANs are still seen anywhere from 10 to 30% of patients. So we are all familiar with the CAR T cell journey for our patient, and it all starts with the apheresis of the autologous T cells, followed by the CAR T5 manufacturing, where most patients or some patients may need bridging therapy, the need for the lymphodepleting chemotherapy with the flucy or bendamustane more recently, and all this has been done outpatient and is what we are very used to. When we talk about uh, outpatient CAR T cell therapy, we really talk about the CAR T cell infusion. Most of the pivotal studies mandated the centers to admit patients for the CAR T cell infusion and the subsequent inpatient monitoring due to very early onset of the CRS and ICANS. Uh, and what we are really talking about today is to move this from inpatient to an ambulatory setting for the infusion and subsequent monitoring. So what can go wrong? We all fear uh, CRS and ICANS and delayed recognition and potentially serious complications of these two uh, toxicities. Uh, the early recognition and treatment are critical for improved outcomes. There are other complications which can happen, such as neutropenic fevers, tumolysis syndrome, or other organ um, injuries, but we are used to those from the transplant uh, settings. So I don't think this is a, really a barrier. What the barrier is that recognition and early management of the ICANS and CRS. So can we prevent it? Just like we prevent GVHD, can we do better in the outpatient setting if we can prevent CRS and ICANS? Well, unfortunately, the strategies uh, which has been tested so far are not very successful. It's not a home run. So tocilizumab has been used to, prof for the, to prophylax CRS. Um, in the first study, uh, it was a safety expansion cohort of the Zuma-1. The tocilizumab was used in day two for the lymphoma. However, it... Uh, Helped with the, it, it didn't help with the CRS, but it even more increased the risk for the ICANS to 35% uh, with a high-grade ICANS and one fatal brain edema, which led to the ex, uh, termination of this cohort. There were two other attempts in BALL and uh, uh, the lymphoma, but again, the tocilizumab prophylaxis for CRS is not recommended due to increased risk for the ICANS. How about steroids? There are several studies using steroids prophylaxis for ICANS. The most uh, established one is a cohort six in a Zuma one study, which used oral dexamethasone, 10 milligrams on day zero, one, and two in 40 patients. And while the CRS was not eliminated, it was delayed and the grade was uh, lowered to grade one and two. Uh, 80% of the patients still developed a CRS and this was really uh, designed to prophylax the ICANS, and this was not observed. The ICANS occurred in 58% of patients, and 30% were greater than 3. So some centers do use prophylaxis of steroids, but it really only delays uh, the CRS and does not impact the ICANS incidence. Anakindra have been used uh, in a, a couple of small studies but this, the results are, are quite variable. I want to highlight two clinical trials in progress for the prophylaxis. First is a study by J. Park in uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering using Anakinra to prevent severe side effects in a patient receiving CAR cell therapy. And this is uh, using Anakinra IL-1 receptor inhibitor 
at uh, this dose every 12 hours for 7 to 10 days in two different cohorts. And in their uh, most recent abstract, they indeed uh, their results, early results, preliminary results suggest lower uh, incidence of ICANS to 22% and grade uh, 3 at 11%. At the University of Minnesota, we have launched a clinical trial using intrathecal dexamethasone and simvastatin post-axis cell as a neurotoxicity prophylaxis. And this is combination of simvastatin uh, for 60 days and intrathecal dexamethasone at 8 milligrams uh, intrathecally on day minus 1, plus 6, and plus 13. And we just did a feasibility cohort, which uh, really was quite successful with uh, uh, most patients who are able to tolerate uh, at least two doses of the intrathecal dexamethasone. And our preliminary data are very encouraging with no ICANs in uh, four patients and only uh, one grade two ICAN. So numerous studies have been done to understand the, uh, side, the, the prognostic factors. If we can prevent it, can we at least identify patients who are at risk for high-risk uh, ICANs? And this is important as we think about patient selection for outpatient cell therapy. So multiple studies, as, uh, um, in a footnote, have, have done this. And uh, the most evidence is for disease burden as being the most significant risk factor, especially for ICANs. The ASIC score and particularly high LDH and low platelets have been identified as a risk factor in some studies. The inflammatory markers such as ferritin and CRP pre-cardi infusion have been associated with the increased risk for some uh, studies. But again, uh, often it's a combination and we are still yet missing some score or reliable index to select patients who are at high risk for ICANS. But these are useful for patient selection and for uh, developing and monitoring frequency and monitoring plan for the particular patient because it's not, not only the disease, it's a patient factors and cortisol products which are also relevant for the incidence uh, of ICANS. So I'm going to review a couple of, uh, uh, in a couple of next slides, uh, the uh, so far clinical uh, experience using cortisol in an ambulatory setting. The initial pioneering experience came from UPenn. Uh, this is a cohort of 78 patients treated uh, on a predominantly outpatient basis. These were older patients, median age of 66, and there were some patients above average 80, uh, with a almost predominantly bendamustane LD chemotherapy. And out of 78 patients, they were able to keep two-thirds outpatient after the CAR T-cell administration and outpatient basis, and only a third was admitted, and um, 12, sorry, 14 patients were admitted within uh, three days for, uh, after CAR T infusion. The length of admission was relatively short, five days, and as they reported in their publication, the CRS was only grade one and two. They uh, were treated mostly uh, outpatient as uh, the experience is really enriched in the center. They were able to keep patients in an ambulatory setting and treat CRS grade one in their clinics. Grade uh, three ICANS was observed in two patients and the outcomes are similar to the pivotal study in terms of the survival and response rates. How about Axicel and Brexa cells? These two products have CD28 costulatomy domain, and the onset of CRS is much earlier, and the grade is higher. Are we comfortable using these products in the ambulatory setting? So here is uh, one of um, early experiences from a Vanderbilt Center, who report on 13 serially treated patients with lymphoma who received Axicel or Brexacel, um, and the uh, bridging therapy was used in about half of the patients, and um, all except three patients eventually had to be admitted to the hospital for management of the CRS or ICANS. However, the, uh, they were able to delay hospitalizations up to 96 hours after the CAR T cell infusion, and the total days in the hospital was seven days. The incidence was high, um, but high-grade CRS and high-grade ICANS events were not observed. So um, this study also report of using early tocilizumab as we are 
gaining a collective experience with the treatment of the CRS and ICANS. We now uh, frequently use tocilizumab for the grade one CRS to prevent further progression. So this is a, a useful and, and a very relevant experience, which really demonstrated that indeed we can use axisal and Brexo cells safely in an outpatient and ambulatory setting with appropriate monitoring and a careful patient selection. And we will really spend uh, uh, today uh, some time to explain the infrastructure you need to be able to pull this off. The third study is combining uh, patients from the cl three clinical trials uh, which used uh, LISA cell, and this is from the ASCO abstract presented uh, two years ago, uh, analyzing 53 patients uh, who received the uh, LISA cell, and these are the lymphoma patients. Uh, most of the patients get admitted, 57%, but uh, only 17 of them were admitted in the first four days. The median time of hospitalization was five days, and importantly, the length of stay was only six day, days, compared to 15 days if the product is infused in an inpatient basis. There were no high-grade toxicities, and the, the response and um, survival was similar to uh, other uh, pivotal studies. On this meeting, uh, the Cell Therapy Consortium presented their experience from uh, nine academic U.S. centers, uh, which uh, summarized the outcomes of 158 patients. 93 of these received the CAR T cell in an outpatient setting. And in terms of the demographics, we noted that these patients had typically lower LDH, had a lower Charleston score, which is a comorbidity index, and two-thirds received bendamustane for LD chemotherapy. We observed a lower CRS in this outpatient cohort, lower ICANS uh, incidence, and a shorter hospital stay, 1.5 days compared to nine days for those who are treated inpatient, with a similar overall and progression-free survival between these groups. So the experience is uh, certainly growing, and um, the infrastructure uh, has to be built to be able to, to deliver the therapies. What are the advantages in, uh, of the outpatient cardiac administration? Of course, it's more convenient for the patient. It's a patient preference in most cases, the quality of life being at home. There is a reduced risk of nosocomial infections. And then there is a reduced use of resources, especially with the COVID era, with the shortages of bed in the hospitals, staff shortages, and lower health utilization cost uh, of already expensive therapy. Uh, this outpatient model is probably more sustainable for society with a more favorable reimbursement model. So when we talk about practice of outpatient CAR T-cell therapy, we talk about CAR T-cell infusion in an ambulatory setting, the patients are monitored very frequently in the clinic, and uh, as they develop fevers or any um, complications, there is a decision-making whether we admit patients or treat them in a clinics. So if they are admitted, uh, this results in a reduced number of days in a hospital, and this is really where the model uh, can be developed. There are certain logistical challenges of the ambulatory cardiac administration which has to be identified and overcome. From the patient's perspective, it may be place to stay, transportation, really having a reliable caregiver who can report on a patient's changes in, uh, at home. Uh, there are certainly cost issues from the patient's perspective. Uh, we need for the patient and the caregiver to be on our team to timely report the changes in their well-being. And uh, they could have an anxiety about complications um, since it's, it's, on their, it's on them and their caregivers. The treatment-centered-related uh, treatment uh, barriers are, are really uh, something where the infrastructure needs to be built. And uh, Dr. Porter will uh, really talk about this in his presentation, but to uh, look at the big picture, the infrastructure need to include outpatient facilities which are open seven days a week. We need on-call providers, typically physicians, uh, 24 hours uh, per day. We need the lab facilities, 
pharmacy on site, trained personnel who can uh, deliver CAR T cell care, which is REM strained. Uh, standard of uh, uh, SOP uh, needs to be in place for post CAR T cell care. Education materials, and I can stress this enough for the patients, the education is the most important thing to have, to have them be on a team. And then uh, the collaboration and partnership with other services, including the ER. Yeah, this talk cannot be without an uh, um, important issue of a reimbursement cost. And this uh, topic is in a constant flux with changing of the medical rules. It certainly varies by institutions and also by inpatient or outpatient administration. However, the outpatient reimbursement is often more favorable for institutions and it's priced for the Cartisol product plus 6% markup. And this is probably more sustainable for society as these therapies really are indicated for a large number of patients and more indications. The copay for Medicare patients is now capped for CAR-T therapy and there is a new diagnostic code uh, in DRG allowing a, a more favorable cost model for administration. For the institutions to avoid the cost losses, the patients have to be retained on an outpatient after the administration, and this really depends on maintaining their status for at least 72 hours. There are several models which include the observation admission for patients who may need to be uh, um, admitted in, in a more um, intensive setting. Uh, but this can be complicated and has to be really looked into uh, in, in an in in individually institution. So what are the future trends for the CAR-T-cell outpatient administration? I think we do need more real-world data, uh, again, about the readmissions and management. What is the time from infusion to admission? What is the time from symptoms to admission? We really do need new biomarkers. Who are the patients at the highest risk of the high-grade CRS and ICANS? And how do we decide, how this can help us to decide whether we keep patients in a clinic or we indeed better admit them to the hospital? We need better prevention strategies for the ICANS especially. And then as the new centers are coming with the cardiacal programs, some may decide to really go solely to outpatient administration with the new designs and more efficient designs for the facilities, infrastructure, to enhance the safe outpatient administration model. At the University of Minnesota, we decided to really develop a prospective observational study, which is answering many questions which I just listed in a more prospective fashion with the collecting of the data. We have a strict selection criteria for outpatient administration, which includes the disease status, uh, the patients with a bulky disease and with more than 5% blasts for BLL would not be recommended to be treated on outpatient setting. The ECOG is important. The patients should not have an active cardiac disease and there are certain criteria for organ function. We also develop uh, outpatient management guidelines, which now include use of tocilizumab uh, for grade one CRS in a clinic and use of a dexamethasone, one dose in a clinic for those patients with very early ICANS. And we have two prospective clinical trials which are specifically focused for the safe ambulatory administration of the cortisol therapy. One of them, and this is something which the field is going, is to use the artificial intelligence for early identification of the cognitive side effects of immunotherapy this is in a way of the phone call, and it's a feasibility, and a feasibility study to really um, uh, diagnose the ICANS with a very sensitive testing prior to the uh, more obvious clinical development uh, with the subtle changes in the language and recall. The second clinical trial, which uh, I already mentioned, is using ICANS prophylaxis with the simvastatin and intrathecal dexamethasone. So with this, I would like to acknowledge uh, the BMTCT program at the University of Minnesota and my colleagues, uh, Dr. Macaron, who is a PI for this uh, uh, neurotoxicity prophylaxis study. And um, thank you for your attention. I would like to invite uh, Heather to second talk. Thank you so much for this opportunity to present uh, my experience um, using homebound transplant. Um, and exploring the lessons learned from this experience. 
So I don't have to tell this audience that every year 20,000 individuals in the United States undergo hematopoietic stem cell transplant and uh, for indications that result in prolonging disease remission or achieving cure. And with every, like everything in life, there's positives and negatives as represented by this yin-yang, which shows the interconnectedness of this relationship. So despite the, um, the implications on survival of transplant, the process is very complex and results in a significant burden to the patient, including prolonged hospital stays, reduced quality of life, and financial toxicity. So in effort to improve the burden on the patient, outpatient transplant programs have been developed where patients are not in the hospital, but instead come back and forth to an outpatient day clinic or to an outpatient transplant clinic where the benefits are shown here for the patient in terms of safety, less hospital days, reduced risk of infection, quality of life, cost savings to the system, and in some cases, extended survival. However, this places a significant burden on the caregiver because the um, care is now trans the burden is now transferred from the inpatient medical team to the caregiver who now has to transfer patients transport patients from um, every daily to the clinic and provide both uh, medication administration and uh, meals. So the greatest, despite the advantages to the patient, the greatest barrier to an outpatient transplant is the availability of a full-time caregiver. So could we move the transplant care from the clinic to the home, and would that result in less disruption to both now the patient and the caregiver and improve both the patient and the caregiver experience? So moving the care from the clinic to the home, meaning that instead of the patient coming to the outpatient day hospital, can we use our staff and um, keep the patient at home and um, have our staff, the medical team, deliver interventions in the home. Um, and while this seems beneficial, again, to the patient and the caregiver, it comes with significant challenges, including the perception that this might be less safe, um, may result in more caregiver burden and liability, can be perceived as a cost-saving measure uh, and less desirable, uncertainty of third-party um, reimbursement, it requires tools to evaluate the safety of the home environment and special protocols for delivering patient care and transferring patient to the transplant center in the cases of an emergency. However, this um, model was pioneered by our colleagues in Europe and in Sweden they, result, they reported the results of a case-controlled study where they showed that patients who underwent home care and were compared to two sets of controls, uh, one with patients being eligible for, for home care, uh, receipt of home care, but decided, um, chose not to participate, and another control group where uh, the patients were eligible for home care but lived beyond the distance required and um, therefore couldn't participate. And they showed in this case study that um, home care re resulted in reduced hospital days, decreased medical costs, increased PO intake, which resulted in reduced acute graft-versus-host disease and less treatment-related mortality. Um, and the bar um, colleagues in Barcelona showed similar advantages to receiving care in the home. And most recently, um, the first publication of uh, home-based transplant was published by the Duke Group and in, amongst 25 patients who were treated with in the home, 
eight patients with allogeneic transplant and 17 with autologous transplant. They, they showed that compared to a control group, which included both uh, patients who received care as an inpatient and um, others that received care as an outpatient, um, clinical outcomes were not inferior with home care. And in fact, quality of life um, improved in the patients receiving home care from day zero to day 100 and also was significantly better than the quality of life of patients who got standard of care. Again, both patients that were hospitalized and were receiving this care as an outpatient. So we embarked on a pilot trial of homebound transplant and MSK, the first experience in a purely urban setting um, where we um, enrolled patients with plasma cell diseases to use home care for patients undergoing autologous stem cell transplant. And in our model, we get, delivered malfalan conditioning and stem cell transplant on day minus two and day zero in the outpatient clinic. And post-transplant care began on day plus one. Uh, eligibility is shown here, but patients had to reside in designated zip codes as defined by ambulance routes where patients had to be able to get to the center in an emergency within 30 minutes. We did mandate a full-time caregiver. They had to have adequate HCTCI and KPS scores and um, good Wi-Fi connection. And in the, our workflow was that every morning the patients were visited by an APP who um, did a, a clinical assessment and drew blood. They returned to the center, the labs were um, processed, and depending on the clinical assessment and the laboratory values, we sent out um, a RN to deliver interventions in the afternoon. And in the, on the days that nothing was required, the RN still visited and provided uh, caregiver respite. Uh, the phys physician communicated with the patient through telemedicine daily. And the goal was really to determine the safety and feasibility of this approach um, as assessed by the hospital readmission rate by day plus 21. And the overall objective was to reduce the burden of care um, and increase the access to this outpatient procedure with all of the benefits to the patient that um, I mentioned. So here were the primary and secondary endpoints of our trial, and uh, 15 patients were enrolled with the following demographics. And in this early experience, the median of home care, um, the patients remained on home care for a median of 12 days and required to a median of two clinic visits. This was mainly for transfusions, which were the only intervention that we were unable to deliver in the home. Um, and overall, less than 50% of patients were admitted for a median of four days for the indication shown here. And really remarkably, only one patient had a documented infection and only one patient required a, a brief ICU stay. And there, was no, there were no deaths on study. So we concluded from this experience that homebound autologous transplant is feasible and safe. Uh, but we learned a lot from this pilot trial. It really takes a village, and here are a smattering of all of the departments that required investment to make this happen. In, in fact, we actually had to form a captive PC, which is a corporation, to allow our nurses to provide care in the home. Uh, so it was not seamless. We needed reliable telemedicine uh, platform, which was essential. And this, was, this pilot trial was done pre-pandemic, where our telemedicine technology was uh, not as reliable as it is today. We learned that few patients required interventions on day plus one through day plus four. And these are lessons that we're taking forward. Um, we also had uh, partnering with our, our behavioral science colleagues. We really wanted to understand 
the experience of patients and caregivers, and they facilitated self-recorded video diaries. And from this, we actually learned that there were overwhelmingly positive feedback from both patients and caregivers. However, this didn't really alleviate the caregiver burden. We still mandated a 24-hour caregiver, and uh, the goal of, of achieving um, more access to an outpatient transplant um, wasn't really going to happen with this model. So moving forward, we are now telemedicine and remote monitoring has advanced quite a bit since our initial experience. And now we're asking the question, can these uh, technologies safely obviate the need for a full-time caregiver during transplant? Uh, again, we're embarking on a trial where the primary endpoint is, the, is safety and feasibility. We're using five different devices um, where we send vital signs in the morning and then using a continuous heart rate and activity monitor uh, from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. where the caregiver is released because we're monitoring the patient during that time remotely. We have secondary endpoints embedded in this trial, quality of life, patient reported outcomes, and importantly, we're calculating the number, the hours of caregiver respite, and the out-of-pocket costs. So our study design, uh, uh, we intend to enroll 30 patients. The first 10 will be part of a run-in phase where the caregiver will be mandated while we optimize the technology and telemedicine monitoring. Um, the difference, um, the, the subsequent 20 patients will not have a caregiver mo uh, mandated during the day, but only from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. Uh, and eligibility is similar to our previous study. So this is the schema, and patients uh, continue to get high-dose melphalan and stem cell reinfusion in the clinic on day minus two and zero. We give uh, Nulasta Onpro on day zero, and then starting on day one, the the um, patient will send their vitals in the morning. They'll have a telemedicine visit with the APP, and only if needed, the RN will go out to the patient based on the uh, APP assessment on day one and day two, because we know that these patients barely need this intervention, don't uh, routinely need interventions on these days. On day plus three, Again, this, the schema is the same, patients send vitals, APP visit, and the RN will go out and draw blood on day plus three, and then again, day plus five through engraftment when we expect the patients to nadir and may need interventions such as fluids or electrolytes. And during this time, um, from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., the patients uh, can be at home and remotely monitored by this, by continuous heart rate, um, which is delivered through a Splunk dashboard and uh, alerts us with any increase or decrease in the heart rate um, based on parameters that we developed. There's transportation, um, both for the RN and the patient that have been um, set up, including ambulance services, and we made provisions for device malfunction and uh, issues after hours, which go through our normal channels. So right now we're completing the 10 patient run-in, and what I've learned uh, from this experience, we're still learning. Um, it really takes more than a village, it actually takes a city. Now that you uh, incorporate all of these telemedicine and remote monitoring and technological devices, and this is just a handful of the people that are involved in this effort. Um, they're still, even despite uh, spending much time and much effort setting up this program, bumps in the road and as this is going on, we see there's issues with specimen collection and transport and timing in case of traffic and getting the specimens to the lab and does it meet our uh, criteria for them to run it. Um, we've had issues with 
with questions about the safety of our nurses um, going out to the home. And for a short period of time, we required a buddy system because we didn't know if sending one person into the home was, um, uh, was questioned if that was safe um, until we found validated tools um, that assess the home environment and have been looked at in this setting. Uh, we've had to adjust the heart rate alarm param parameters in certain settings. We've had to develop certain different workflows for different devices. And we've also realized that this is not a program for everyone. That some of the patients opted to um, um, enroll on this trial because they were less invested and wanted nothing to do with the hospital and were really less invested in the transplant procedure, but those are actually not the right patients because this does take um, some investment on the part of the patient. So how do we apply this experience to homebound, uh, to outpatient CAR T-cell programs? I would say involve representatives from, it, um, from any department that may have a stake in the implementation of the program early and often. Consider a run-in period to optimize the protocols and technology. Technology is the ultimate yin-yang. When it works, it's uh, great. When it doesn't, it could be a disaster. Choose patients wisely and be flexible because we're in a, the setting of an ever-changing healthcare environment and with uh, changing technological considerations. However, I do really think that this is, will ultimately benefit patients and caregivers and optimize util, uh, resource utilization. So I encourage patients to uh, embark on this journey. Takes really a city, and I'd like to end by acknowledging my amazing team, um, as well as all the patients and their caregivers. And invite Dr. Porter up for his talk. Well, thank you. Um, I'm going to try and go through this very quickly, because I think it's probably as important that we leave some time for discussion, um, rather than just going through the slides. I believe they're all posted. Um, but I want to highlight a couple very important slides. Um, we first started treating patients with CAR T cells back in 2010 at University of Pennsylvania. Our first patient was a 59-year-old gentleman, Bill Ludwig. I can use his name and picture because he's been written about in public, including in the New York Times. He was our first patient. Um, he was treated, in fact, as an outpatient, though he ended up getting admitted. He achieved a complete remission by day 31. I think this is one of my more important slides. The slide on the left um, was his day of infusion, and this is somewhat historical for us. In the um, white coat there on the right with Mr. Ludwig is Bruce Levine. Um, Bruce was the uh, director of our cell production facility and, in fact, developed the process to manufacture CAR T-cells. He made Mr. Ludwig's CAR T-cells. He was there at the infusion. You can see um, once in remission, um, here he was back in the office. He was patient number one of CART-19, and all I got was this T-shirt and remission, of course. And then in 2020, with everybody wearing masks because of the height of the pandemic, here he is at his 10-year anniversary, uh, alive, well, and in remission. Um, as you know and saw, there are now six uh, FDA-approved CAR T-cell products for six different indications. Dr. Landau used the same expression just a minute ago. Um, we all say it takes a village. Indeed, it takes a city. Um, this is the skyline of Philadelphia, and I'll also point out that this picture was taken from our cell manufacturing facility um, out the window. In fact, Bruce Levine took that picture. He will claim it's the nicest view of any cell manufacturing facility around, although I haven't seen them all. Um, well, why do this as an outpatient? We've heard a little bit of this as well. Um, certainly, patient satisfaction and convenience is high on the list. It does improve quality of life. We've seen some of that. It conserves inpatient resources. This is important all the time, but was critically important during the um, COVID pandemic when inpatient bed and staff shortages were so critical. The home environment and a focused care team, just a few people touching that patient, may in fact improve medical care um, and safety, and it may indeed be more financially sustainable than trying to do this as an inpatient. 
To do this, you have to identify the staff in the departments. You have to do appropriate training. We were one of the first sites to be uh, site accredited to give CAR T-cells, I remember, and the recommendations for REMS training were very vague. They said that you had to train everybody who might be in contact with the patient or product. We trained over 700 people when, when this was um, first FDA approved. Um, and it has to be centered, of course, around patient care. And just to show you, when you think about all the people who touch an episode of care of a patient that you have to include, I'm not going to read this, um, uh, you all know this, but there are so many different units and departments and people that actually touch an episode of an individual patient's care. However, to take care of that patient with CAR T-cells, and when we talk about inpatient, outpatient, I, I would say it's all about the toxicity. It's about the CRS and neurologic toxicity monitoring and management. Um, that is dependent in part on the product that you use, when we talk about lymphoma, um, there are different co-stimulatory domains from the different products, CD28 um, versus 41BB. They seem to account, at least in large part, for some of the different toxicity profiles. So when we choose a CAR T-cell product and a location of care, I, I will start with the first bullet all the time. Choose the product that results in the best outcomes. Everything else is, is just detail and, and secondary. However, if you have products that you believe have similar outcomes, then you can start deciding which is the best product and the best um, location of care for an individual patient. Um, we do inpatient care when we think toxicity is frequent, it's going to be early in onset, and it's anticipated to be severe. We can do outpatient management when toxicity is less common. It's more predictable in onset, and that's really critical. Not that you don't get it. You can just predict when you would get it, and it might have slow escalation. And it's anticipated to be mild to moderate. Um, so you have to select the appropriate patient. The real answer to the appropriate patients, they have to be physically stable, and of course that's going to mean something different to all of us. They have an adequate performance status. They, they don't have rapidly progressive, very aggressive disease. You can use organ function testing to help assess this, look at their cardiac and pulmonary function, their renal function, LFTs, et cetera, do predict some, some degree of uh, physiologic reserve. And you heard some of the other factors that predict um, Toxicity such as LDH, bulky disease, etc. The patient has to be reliable. They have to be within an hour of the treatment center should they need to get there quickly and have a caregiver available. Then you select the appropriate product, and as I mentioned, that depends in large part about toxicity and predictability. Um, and have the available resources. You have to have outpatient expertise that's available around the clock. That doesn't mean in a call room in the hospital. They just have to be available. They have to be easily accessible. We use telemedicine or in-person visits frequently, but not every day. Um, we schedule twice a week, which I'll show you, and then you have to have adequate staff training. This all centers around a coordinator that starts this process. They, they do all of these different tasks. This indeed is our cell therapy coordinator, um, Lizzie Weber. She always wanted to be a nurse, uh, uh, even when she was young. She's a little bit older now um, when she does the job. But this is our team. We start with a coordinator that really initiates the process. They have a lot of tasks. They initiate education um, and help with patient selection. We have a nurse practitioner that helps manage these patients right before their cell infusion to verify that they are indeed appropriate candidates and then helps manage them in the outpatient setting. Um, we have somebody dedicated to this, um, though many of our nurse practitioners um, are quite well trained with expertise here. Um, there is a physician. Um, I will say as part of the team, um, uh, usually led by the coordinator and nurse practitioner, and the physician does what they're told often. But um, use, we, um, of course, use a lot of home care. They help with patient education, care, toxicity assessments, medication management, symptom management. And then we've heard a lot about the, the critical role of the um, family support to make this happen. Uh, at our center, patients have to have a caregiver to be able to get cells as an outpatient. We've administered over 1,100 CAR T-cell products since that first patient that I showed you, um, since 2000. 
um, 10. Um, many were pen manufactured, um, but over 300 commercial products now. You can see we've administered all the different products. And this is how we do it as an outpatient. Sunita Nasta and our group um, published our experience. Dr. Bakanova just showed you some of this of our 72 patients um, in a span between really 2018 through 2020. Um, but really what I'm showing you here is a little bit of the process from um, apheresis through lymphodepletion. Then our patients come in for a clinical evaluation and we make an assessment here on the right side whether they are appropriate for inpatient or outpatient admission. Some of the indications for admission might be bulky disease, poor organ function, increase in symptoms. If they have these, we will admit them for CAR T-cell infusions, um, or, or at least, I'm, I'm, I guess I, I didn't mention, I'm talking specifically in this case, in this manuscript, about T-cell. Um, T-cell like Lucell has a little bit more predictable um, later onset toxicity, and so we favor that in an, in an outpatient setting. Um, and so with these patients, that's how we decide whether we'll do an inpatient or outpatient management. If they don't have um, indications for, for inpatient management, we will treat them as an outpatient. They get their infusion. We have them come back on day two and four. They often see the nurse practitioner, sometimes the physician, and then we see them weekly on day eight through day 30, assuming they are well. But of course, unscheduled visits um, may be common and or easy to arrange, and we admit them for toxicity. Dr. Bakanova showed you um, this data just showing you that two-thirds of these patients remained outpatients, and it is important to note that 19, only 19% 19 of these patients were admitted within three days. For the administrative-minded of you in the audience, you will know that, that talking about that three-day admission, because if someone's admitted within three days, that um, um, uh, financially gets converted to an inpatient episode of care. And that has financial implications to the health system, whether this is an outpatient episode of care or inpatient. So we use that 72-hour rule. Um, outcomes in this group of patients were as anticipated, um, and the outcomes were similar to what were seen in the pivotal trials. I will skip through this. Um, <clears throat> But it is important. This is not, I, I, I absolutely don't want to give an impression um, that this is uh, simple or trivial. Um, you have to maximize safety, and there are ways to do that. We certainly do that by providing detailed and ongoing education, including education for caregivers. Um, everybody um, gets a, a mandated wallet card with information should they become ill. We have predefined SOPs for outpatient care. Everybody should have that developed before they start treating patients. You have to have adequate staffing. Um, one of the hardest parts is to have rapid emergency room or hospital access. Um, I'm sure we're all strained here, um, but emergency rooms do get these patients in and they will see them if needed. Outpatient clinical care, having 24-7 clinical care is really difficult and I'm, I'm sure is not practical for many centers. It is not at our center and we do rely on our ED for off-hours care. Um, uh, but if that is available, that is a wonderful place to see and evaluate these patients for toxicity. Um, there are other ways that we can mitigate toxicity. You heard about using prophylactic steroids or tocilizumab maximizing telemedicine, maximizing wearable devices, which I'd love to talk about in the discussion, whether they, they add anything to a patient knowing that they're having symptoms, um, do wearable devices improve outcome, and I'm, I'm anxious to see that data come out. Um, you have to monitor the outputs, who's going to handle the alarms and alerts, etc., and it would be ideal to have procedures to bypass those difficult emergency room stays um, for admission. And then, of course, it's always distasteful to talk about financial implications, um, but they are important because even when an admission is required, the overall length of stay is shorter. When we start as an outpatient, the hospital resources um, used are less. And, and this is critical, and I'm going to quote Dr. Gatwood from um, um, uh, their publication here. Um, I love this quote, um, talking about Medicare reimbursement in the inpatient setting often leaves the healthcare facility at a cost deficit. Contrarily, outpatient care does not attract nearly as much of a deficit. Um, really well said. I think what that says is that if you do it all as an inpatient for Medicare patients, you lose money, and if you can do it as an outpatient, you don't lose as much money. 
Um, and, and, but this is much better worded. Um, reimbursement contracts for most centers, I think, are less favorable if patients are admitted rather than as an outpatient, and that's where it's converted in that first 72 hours. Institutions reimburse at a lower rate. And so if you were to do inpatient treatment for Medicare patients only at your center, this would not be financially sustainable. When we've looked at, at some of these models, um, you wouldn't be able to do this for very long. Just your health system would, would lose too much money. Um, there are different ways to establish a program to do this. There's a, a, a model that many places have where you have the different cell therapy groups, I'm, I'm sorry, the different um, uh, malignancy groups that refer all their patients to a cell therapy service. We're now adding non-cancer um, services and solid tumor services, and then they're cared for by your cell therapy service. A model that we really use um, really is more of a matrix-like model where we have a cell therapy program and we have experts in all of our different disease entities that are part of our cell therapy program. Um, so it's not that they're necessarily referred to somebody different. We have expertise within all the disease entities. And I think there are advantages and disadvantages of, of each model. Um, but when you have expanded expertise um, uh, in one big program, um, this model on the right may serve you better. Um, when you have less um, broad expertise, the model on the left um, may be more appropriate for your center. Everybody will have a little bit different model. Um, there are a couple um, papers out there worth looking at. These slides will be posted. I'm not going to review these. Um, but this was a, a publication from Vanderbilt going through a nice flow chart about the, the process of care when you're doing this as an outpatient. Um, and when you get to the bottom right here and, and patients have been treated using telemedicine and wearable devices to try and mitigate toxicities. Um, this model by, by um, a, a group of um, uh, experts from various different centers was published in 2021, which is a little bit more intensive. This is checking in with a patient early every morning, late at night, having handoffs between caregivers every day. Um, it's a very, very intensive follow-up model. Um, it may or may not be necessary for all patients. Um, I just um, I call your attention to it, um, published in TCT Journal. Um, worth looking at as you're trying to set up your program. Um, but I will say that I think this can be done safely, but you have to select the appropriate patients, you have to select the appropriate product for what you're trying to do if you're doing it as an outpatient. Um, having internal infrastructure is critical with dedicated staff, space, program management. The training of staff is indeed extensive. Um, defined SOPs have to be available for outpatient selection and management before you start this. Um, there has to be the seamless and rapid transition from outpatient to inpatient care. Um, maintaining and following FAC guidelines, which I haven't even mentioned, is critical and really, really important to, to maintain quality of care. Um, uh, and outpatient CAR T-cell therapy, if you do all this, um, I will tell you is feasible, it's safe, um, and it can be quite effective. So, um, of course, I, I, I think um, most places do have all the right pieces, just have to put them all together to make this work. So with that, um, I thank you, and I turn it back over to Dr. Oluwale. Thank you. All right, we'll go through a few questions so, Dr. Dr. Lindo, there was one question here that says, how have you been able to show whether outpatient transplant or maybe even cellular therapy is more cost-effective? That, in other words, treating them outpatient, did it translate into better finances for the institution? Yeah, we haven't done that analysis yet, but that is part of our plan moving forward. At least resource utilization is clearly less, so that's a good thing. Then for Dr. Potter, um, what can manufacturers do to support outpatient therapy? Are there things they can do to help the patients who have to stay close to institution? What else can manufacturers do? Or would that be too much inducement? Um, I don't think it's too much inducement. Patients are going to get CAR T-cells, um, and I think it's up to the site to pick the product. Um, I think helping um, uh, with patient and family, yes, transportation and lodging, et cetera, that, it's a big burden to come and 
get for REAST and then be expected to relocate for that month. Um, we have patients stay within an hour. You know, how do you get those patients that were two, three, four hours away from your center or further? So, so I think that that's critical. I think help with um, patient education um, and family education is really critical. Um, uh, uh, helping either the center or directly to the patient with various resources um, uh, I, I think is really important. And then, um, you know, of course, supporting some of these novel approaches, whether they are, are pilot programs or clinical trials, um, trying to do this in an outpatient setting or, or various um, uh, monitoring techniques, um, uh, various um, um, prophylactic techniques, um, helping to support the academic centers really optimize this therapy would be critical um, because all of this to, to do these therapies um, to test these different interventions and assess them um, does require some support, and that would so, be really useful. Thank you. We'll do one more online question, and those who are here can interact with the presenters subsequently. So, Dr. Bakanova, if somebody is admitted right after infusion or maybe within a day or two and they are still Medicaid, can the hospital still get payment under 340B pricing? Yeah, so... so so this is important to really, uh, as we talk about the reimbursement issues, it's important to understand this for centers to be, you know, at least equally not to, for the institution to lose money. Uh, if the patients get admitted after infusion, like the next day, for an inpatient admission, then the charges are, are not um, able to be reimbursed for outpatient cortisol product. They are all rolled out into the inpatient admission, so institutions is losing a lot of money by this practice. This is the complicated issue because 72 uh, hours rule for the Medicare says that if you have to delay the admission for 72 hours for the outpatient charges to be fully reimbursable. And 72 hours really is, 70, is three midnights. So if you infuse CAR-T on Monday, the earliest day you can admit patient to the inpatient service would be Friday. What we've done uh, in our center is we admit patients for observation if they really need to be monitored inpatient because of the fevers or other issues, and that works for most situations. However, if the patient has clearly inpatient criteria without being more sick, then of course we do what is the best for the patients, but this 72-hour uh, rule is a looming cloud in some ways, for the outpatient CAR-T uh, ambulatory uh, treatment. Thank you. So we'll take two questions from the audience. Sir, please go ahead. Yeah, thank <clears throat> Fred Lemaitre, Sarah Cannon. Guys, what a tour de force. Maybe the best collection of presentations about this that I've heard. Um, a comment and then a question to Dr. Bakanova's point. What you may not know is there's a glitch in the CMS rule, and we're about to lose that observation uh, status for the approved products, and so that will be excluded. So it's, this is something that the Government Relationship uh, Committee for ASTC is working intensively on right now, so it's a little bit scary. Um, in the Sarah Cannon Network, we do about 1,600 cell therapies a year, uh, transplant cell therapies, about 400 immunofactor cell therapies across our network. Um, you guys have not really, how do we scale? Advisory board projects that, for example, our program in Austin will need, by a year from now, uh, could do as many as an additional, with just the approved indications now, uh, none of the ones on the horizon, 350 additional patients. In San Antonio, 400 patients. In Denver, 700 patients. And so with the reimbursement challenges and the complexity of care, I'd love your thoughts about access and how we scale to deliver care for patients. It's an easy question. <laughs> I would call you. <laughs> you guys have done some of that, David. Um, yeah, it's it's really hard. Um, so scaling requires a number of things. Um, we can scale our administrative program. Um, it's hard. It requires a lot of. Um, people with financial expertise to justify to your health system why you need the appropriate, you know, medical care, nursing care, coordinator care, et cetera. We can scale all that. Um, we can't scale space, and that's where we're going to have problem, and that is why, in fact, um, this outpatient um, 
management is so, so important. Um, you have to build a new hospital. You need more beds. But we also need more hospital space. So one of the things that we are thinking about um, to scale this, and it goes in with a lot of other initiatives um, that we're talking about, is how do you increase patient access and scale at the same time? So as these therapies are getting safer, and I think you've heard from everybody, we're not talking about doing this as an outpatient. You know, after the first few patients, we were talking about people were going to die from CAR T cells. Now we're talking about outpatient care. It's getting safer. There are prophylactic measures. There are preventative measures. There's better monitoring. Can you move this therapy out beyond the few major academic centers that have limited space, limited resources, and move them out into the community where the patients are so, so disseminate the care into a community hospital, for instance? Now, not necessarily a community hospital in a rural setting that's got 25 beds, but, but there are many hospitals in suburban areas and community places with excellent medical care. And then you can, um, you can really disperse the, the concentration of care. You can um, uh, really scale to a much higher level if you use your network. You, you have you know, the best model to do that through Sarah Cannon with all your, your different centers. Um, you know, at Penn, we, we have a network of a number of affiliated community hospitals that we are now starting to um, implement CAR T-cell therapy, making sure that they meet all the criteria that we talked about today, that it's done safely as the number one priority, but it can be done. And that, that's how we're looking to, to be able to scale this further. Thank you very much. We'll not be able to take any other questions, but the panelists will stay behind and our emails are accessible and we can continue this interesting discussion. Thank you very much for joining us. This activity is certified by the Medical College of Wisconsin. This activity is co-provided with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NEC 860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb and Kite, a Gilead company.